0: Ephesians 4, verse 1, if you would, read along with me. Ephesians 4, verse 1, one more time. I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit." Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you would pray with me this morning, dear dearly Father God, I just pray, Lord, as we continue on this study of you, Lord, this study of, of the nature of God, Lord, that, that you are one, yet three, that you are one in essence, yet three in persons, Lord. I pray Lord, although this is beyond our comprehension, God, that we understand what you have revealed to us, Lord, to not only be true, not only to be glorious, but also applicable to our lives, Lord. I pray that as we look again in-depthly at the doctrine of the Trinity, Lord, that we walk away today with practical application, Lord, in how we interact in our relationships, Lord, here at the church and our family and our marriage. Lord, at work, God, you have created us to be be men and women that need and and model relationship, Lord, and I pray that that is true, and I pray that we understand why that is true this morning. In your Son's name, amen. We've been saying the overarching theme of Ephesians, again, of course, is unity and love, and we're in the heart of the book of um, Ephesians, and, and we've been talking about unity now for weeks. And I proposed a question a few weeks ago, how does unity glorify God? And the simple answer has been, it glorifies God because it reflects God. Unity reflects God because God is unified. He is a trinity, three persons unified. And therefore, our unity glorifies God because God is a tri-unity. unity the Trinity is foundational, in other words, to our unity as a church body. And last week and this week, because of that, and because of the passage I just read that really focuses on the Trinity, we have been focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity. We've been trying to answer three questions, and the three questions are these. Does the, does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? The second question is this. Does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? And the third question how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? Last week we did my our best to answer the first two questions. Does the, the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? And of course, the answer is yes. The Bible teaches three things that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, that all three persons are fully divine, and there are but and there is one God in essence. In other words, there is one God that has revealed himself in three persons. Unified diversity. We've been using those words, that God is unified, yet at the same time diverse. The second question we tried to answer last week is, does the the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? And we came to a conclusion that it's not illogical. It's not a contradiction. It's one essence, three persons. It's unified diversity. And that's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. It's beyond our comprehension, but it's a mystery that creation reflects. And if you would like a a further explanation of why creation reflects the Trinity, I would encourage you to, to listen to the sermon last week if you missed it. But today, we're going to be answering the question... How does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? In other words, what is the application that comes from the doctrine of the Trinity? And before I even get started, I just want to give credit to two books that I am heavily relying on in this sermon. And the first one is Bruce Ware. It's by Bruce Ware. It's called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second one is Tim Chester. It's called Delighting in the Trinity, and if you want to look these books up, I encourage uh, you to read, if you want a deeper understanding of the Trinity, either one of these. There's another, Delighting in the Trinity, that's written by Michael Reeves, I think is his name, and, and both those books are great, so if you get mixed up, it's all right. Uh, Tim Chester or Michael Reeves, uh, but Bruce Ware was my professor in, in seminary, and I, I use his book heavily in the sermon, and I'll be quoting from him a lot this morning. So how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? I have five application points. And I learned this morning that I probably should have had like a three or four sermon series instead of trying to do two. And so I'm going to be speaking fast and trying to get through this. And there's a lot of information that's going to be coming out this morning. And um, hopefully we'll get out on time. So the first application point is this. God intends his very nature to be expressed or imaged in our human relationships. God intends his very nature to be expressed or image in our human relationships. Psalms 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, but only man was made in God's image. In fact, Genesis 1.26 says this, let us, plural, let us make man in our, again, plural, our image after our, plural, likeness. And then verse 27, it says this, so God created man in his own image. He created, or in the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. God is a God of relationship from eternity past. And one way we image God is in our relationships. And I, I have to say after this study, I really think one of the main ways, if not the main way we image God, is in relationship. That is marriage and family. Right? Marriage images of God. Unity, one flesh, diversity and roles, relationship, authority, gender. Male and female, he created them. Family images God. The husband has authority over the wife, who both have authority over the child, yet are all equal in value. Just like the father has authority over the son, and they both have authority over the Holy Spirit, yet all equal in value. The church bod- body should model God unified, one body and one in spirit, one, one, one in the same mind, one in purpose, one in love, Yet diverse in role, giftings, and relationships. One, unity, body, diverse parts. God is a God of relationships, and we are called to be a people that images that. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Matthew 22, verse 36. I want to show that God expects us as Christians, the followers of Christ, to make relationships a pri- priority. To make relationships a priority. We've gone over this passage before, but I think it's super important. Matthew 22, verse 36 says this, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? This is a Pharisee trying to trap Jesus. Ask a question that's impossible to answer. I think there's 613 commands in the Old Testament, and this, this Pharisee is asking Jesus, which one is the greatest? And Jesus answers: look at verse 37. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. In other words, all of our devotion, everything we do, should be motivated for love of God. One way we love God is by obeying him. Meaning this one commandment, love God, covers everything. It was the perfect answer to this question. But look at verse 39. Jesus adds this. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Think about that. If the first answer, love God with all your heart, covers everything, that includes the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. right? Why add the second greatest commandment? The Pharisee that came to him didn't say, give me the first and then give me the second. He just said, give me the first, and he gave the perfect answer. Why add the second? Here's what I think. If If you do not love God, all right, you do not love God if you don't love others. You do not love God if you don't love others, especially those within the church, in fact, that's what First John four nineteen says. We love because he first loved us. In other words, God is a God of love because he's a trinity and he's been in a relationship from eternity past and his love for each other has overflowed to, overflow to, to his followers and, and we should be so filled with love that that overflows to others. We love because he first loves us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, A brother is those within the church, fellow Christians. Anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, you want to know how well you are doing loving God? Look at how well you're doing loving others. Think about that. If man is made in the image of God, especially your Christian brother, born again in the likeness of God, has the Holy Spirit, right, the third member of the Trinity, living within them, how can you say, I love God and hate his image? James picks up on this and he says something very similar in James 3, eight, He says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That makes absolutely no sense. That's what James is saying. How can you say that you worship God and bless God while you, while you talk behind people's backs? While you gossip? While you say ugly things about your brothers who are made in the image of God, that makes no sense. How could you say you love God when you curse his image? Man images God, especially Christians. So here's the point. It's easy. It's easy to trick yourself in thinking that you love God. It is much harder to prove that you love God by loving others. I mean, think of the Pharisees. If anyone tricked themselves in thinking they loved God, it was the Pharisees. But they had God himself put on the cross and killed. How are they doing loving others? Not very well. It's easy to trick yourself in thinking you love God. It's much harder to prove your love for God by loving others. And that's why Jesus added the second greatest commandment. Love for others shows love for God. He was talking to Pharisees. God is a God of relationship. Therefore, we need to make relationships a priority, especially the marriage relationship and the church body relationship. Which leads me to my second point. God made, or being made in the triune God's image tells us that we are made for community. You might be asking to yourself, isn't that the, the same as the first point? Think about this. God is a trinity not a duality. In other words, it's three persons, not two. In other words, we were made for relationships, that's true, but we were also made for community. Community. And think about it, the Old and New Testament, when a person was saved, he was put into a community. The Old Testament was Israel, the New Testament was the church. Or is the church the Old Testament the outward signs think about this the outward signs of salvation was circumcision and the sacrificial system, both of these were personal and intimate practices, and both identified people with a community Israel in the New Testament. We have outward signs of our salvation. Baptism and communion. Again, baptism and communion don't add to your salvation. They don't make you saved. They're just outward signs of what happened to you spiritually. Both of these are personal and intimate practices. And both identify people with a community, the church. In fact, remember what Ephesians 4.4 4 says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one... Baptism. Baptism and communion shows our unity. You know what's interesting? America is the only country that I know of. There might be a couple other countries out there, but but it's in the minority. It's the only country that I know of that baptism doesn't cost you anything. Every other country that 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 we go visit missionaries and, and cross cultures to different cultures, every other country that we've been to, if you get baptized, it costs you something. You we went to Poland, and you, you're, you're fine by putting your faith in the Lord. You're fine by going to church. You're fine by reading the Bible. But if you get baptized, the family's going to disown you. Because you're identifying with the Christian church and rejecting the Catholic church. Same with Indonesia or uh, other places. Your life is on the line if you get baptized because you're identifying with Christ. Listen. Salvation is radically individual. It's your relationship with God. It's your faith. I can't have faith for you. It's my kids. I can't have faith for them. It's their faith. Yet at the same time, it's completely communal. You're entering into a community when you put your faith in the Lord. Bruce Ware says this, God intends that there be a community of persons in which there is interconnection and interdependence. So that what one does affects another. And what, what one needs can be supplied by another. And what one seeks to accomplish may be supported by another. Listen, we live in a pluralistic society. What's that mean? It just means we emphasize diversity. Right? We emphasize particulars. We emphasize being individuals. And this has influenced the church. People... Think we don't need to be interconnected and interdependent to be a Christian, or we just simply don't need the church. That's not true. If you are saved, you are the church, the universal church. You may be saved and not be a part of a local church, but you're fighting against God's design. You're fighting against the image of God that's within you. You're not imaging God the way that you could be. The Trinity is both interconnected and interdependent. Bruce Ware writes, the interconnectiveness and the interdependence among the members of the Trinity is such that one is hard-pressed to think of any work of God, think about that, any work of God, which does not involve various members of the Trinity working together. There is an interconnection and interdependence inherent in the very nature of God. Here's the point. If you pride yourself of being like a lone ranger of some sort, you say, I don't need the church, you're fighting against God's design. Imaging God means being interconnected and interdependent with a body of believers. So let me just ask a personal question. You can examine your your own heart. Do you feel interconnected and interdependent here at Country Oaks? If not, maybe it's time to take that next step of involvement. Maybe join in a small group, a growth group. Because we need each other. We need each other's experience. We need each other's wisdom. We need each other's encouragement, accountability. We need each other's giftings. God has gifted each one of you in a particular way. We're going to talk more about this next week. But in a particular way to be used to build up the body. We need you. And God has sovereignly placed you into hatchape and here at Country Oaks. So we, Country Oaks, need you. This leaves me to my next point. Verse, or, uh, point number three. The Trinity models to us a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that's not discord. In other words, the Trinity models perfect unity in perfect diversity. Unity in essence, purpose, mind, love, diverse in persons, roles, and relationships. In fact, without the roles found in the Trinity, within the Trinity, the whole Christian faith disintegrates. Let me give you an example. Has anyone ever asked you, as you're witnessing to them or this relative, has anyone asked you, "What are you saved from? When you say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. Has anyone asked you, saved from what? You know what the answer is? God's perfect holy just wrath. God is just and he will punish sin. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that is a warning. Your only hope is putting your faith in Christ that he paid the the payment on the cross for your sins and and that gets that's the point. Like God is both your savior and God's justice is also what and whom you're being saved from. How is that possible? So, what one theologian has said. In order for us sinners to be saved, one must see God as the one judging our sin, the Father. And at the same time, the one making the payment for our sins, the Divine Son. And at the same time, the one empowering and directing the Incarnate Son, the Holy Spirit. For the Christian God to be Savior, he must be triune, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unified in essence, yet diverse in roles. Father, just judgment. Son, making the payment. The Spirit, empowering the Son and empowering believers. In this, we see perfect unity and diversity. You know what? We're called to model this. We're called to model this. Unified as the body of Christ, one body, one purpose, one ultimate goal, one mind, yet at the same time, diverse. You know, just a side note, and this is something that was told to me, and I think it's just absolutely true. The first sign a church may be unhealthy, and I'm just going to say sign and may. I want to emphasize that. It's not a guarantee. But The first sign a church may be unhealthy is that there's no diversity. You walk in the doors and, and there's, they're all the same age, all the same jobs or same wealth, all the same giftings, all from the same culture or race. The sign that that may be an unhealthy church. A healthy church is both unified in worship, doctrine, love, and purpose, yet at the same time diverse. Listen, when that happens, it's beautiful, is it not? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know what? It reflects the glory of God. It reflects the beauty of God, unified and diverse. Listen, I just want you to hear the unity and diversity in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. I I went over this verse, or this verse last week, but just listen. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, diversity, but the same spirit, unity. And there are varieties of services, diversity, but the same Lord, unity. And there are varieties of activities, diversity, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone, unity. And then look at verse 11, it says this, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit, unity, who apportions to each one individually as he wills, diversity, diversity. Unity, one body, diversity of gifts, services, and activities. But that's not the only diversity we should see in the church. Not just our giftings. But the church should be diverse in age, background, cultures, ethnicities within the body of Christ. There's over 80 verses calling for unity in worship in, in Scripture, yet diversity in culture, languages, and races I mean, think of Ephesians, just for example. Diversity, Jews and Gentiles. Unity, one body. You know, it's beautiful when that happens. You go to a a church that has South Koreans and North Koreans worshiping together. One God, unified. That's beautiful. That glorifies God. When you come to a church that's Full of all types of ages, worshiping together, laying down their preferences. You have to lay down your preferences to have a church of all different ages. That's beautiful. It shows the diversity. I mean, throughout the whole Bible, we see all the nations, all peoples of the earth, all the earth, all the families, right? All the earth, all to the ends of the earth, all mankind, every language, every tongue. Listen, the Trinity. Is one of my greatest motivations for missions. It's one of my greatest, but one of the reasons I'm so excited for cross cultural work is because God wants a diverse church. God doesn't promise that the majority of mankind will go to heaven. In fact, He promises the other thing the minority will be saved. Wide is the way to destruction. Yet He does promise that there will be people from every nation. Every tongue. God wants diversity in His church. Right? Revelations 5 9 says this, and they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were, were slain, and with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations, diversity. Verse 10 And you have made them a kingdom, unity, one kingdom. Listen, in the end, and I can go over verse and verse and verse, it says the same thing, but at the end, there's going to be one kingdom yet, diversity and tribe, people, languages, and nations. In fact, I don't think it's going to change. I think just from, and there's, I guess there's arguing that goes with theologians and how this is going to work, that we will speak different languages, but understand each other kind of like tongues in, in Acts 2 for eternity this diversity within one kingdom worshiping god forever we are called to embrace this because it glorifies god how can we embrace diversity it's somewhat hard to achieve yeah, i get that but there's three ways we can do this first make missions a priority make missions a priority the gospel going across cultures The people that have never heard the gospel before, people groups. Make that a priority at church. Another way we can do this is to try to reach the diverse cultures within our small town. I know there's not that many, but there's a large Hispanic culture in our town. We could do better at reaching the the Hispanic culture, and I'm thankful if you're Hispanic and you're here this morning, we have a growing Hispanic population in our church. We love you, and we're thankful you're here. There's a growing Middle Eastern culture in our community. We can purposefully reach out to that culture. Another way we can do this is purposely make friends within the church that are different than you. Different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And listen, this is hard. That's why I say purposefully. It takes effort I'm thankful, I said this first service, but I am thankful for women's ministry that decided, hey, we're just going to do that. We're going to mix the groups up. We're not going to do different age levels. Side note, this is hard, right? You know why it's hard? It's actually Brent that told me this and I just, it makes so much sense. You know why it's hard to do this, to reach out to people that, that, aren't, like that aren't like us? Because we love ourselves. We have a self-love we want people around us that are like us because it's easier. Here's the fourth application. The Trinitarian relationship models to us an inherent expression of authority and submission. The Trinitarian relationship models to us an inherent expression of authority and submission. Our culture despises authority, whether it's police, government, parental, the husband's authority over the wife within marriage. Ooh. One day, we'll, they're going to lock these doors because we preach that. <laughs> Pastoral authority in the church. Our culture is programmed in us to despise authority, yet in the Trinity, we see a beautiful picture of authority and submission, lived out in perfect joy and love. The Father has ultimate authority. Right, Jesus is king of Kings and Lord of lords, but the Father had the authority to make him king of kings. Psalms 2, 7 says this, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father has ultimate and supreme authority, able to give the Son the nations. Here's my question. How does the Father model a godly use of authority? Well, one way he's willing to delegate his work to others. Just think about that for a second. It's what Bruce Ware says. One of the most astonishing features of the father, Father's unique work is his willingness and desire to accomplish his work through others, in particular his son. Ephesians 1.3, we should be familiar with this. It says this, Praise be to God the Father, Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. It's the Father who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He uses Christ to accomplish his blessing to us. The Father accomplishes his work through his Son, then gives his Son praise. Which leads to our second point He, the Father, makes much of those under his authority. He makes much of those under his authority. The father doesn't neglect his own authority or glory, but at every opportunity he praises his son. He says, Look at my son. Look at my son. In fact, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this, Therefore, God, that's the father, has highly exalted him. That's the son. And bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He delegates his work to the Son who is his subordinate, who is under his authority. Then he makes much of him when his Son accomplishes his task. The application should be pretty obvious. If you're an authority, be willing, willing to delegate your work to those under your authority and make much of them when they succeed. Right? This works in parenting. Give your children responsibilities. Then praise them when they succeed. Encourage them when they do good. This works in marriage. Husbands, do you make much of your wife? Do you encourage your wife? Do you let them know how much you love them and appreciate them and not just them in front of others? Stop criticizing them. Start encouraging them. It works in the church body. I can be a perfectionist. I actually am surprised that I can be a perfectionist. When I first started working here, we started doing ministries and I was just, I had my hands in everything. I was placing chairs where they should be and not letting people work through. And I had to learn that my way is not the only way. <laughs> I had to learn to delegate work to others so they can grow. And when they succeed, make much of them. These all model the Father's authority. What about the Son's submissiveness? What can we learn from the son? When it comes to authority and submission, listen, being submissive does not mean being inferior. In fact, it's Godlike. You want to be like Christ? Be submissive when you're under someone's authority. Listen to these passages. John 8:28 says this, so Jesus said to them, "When you have lifted up the Son of man, then you will know that I am he that's just I am." When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me." John 6, 38, 38 says this, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me." And in Gethsemane, of course, we know this Luke 22:42 says, "Father." If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus was submissive. And think about this. Sometimes authority changes. Pastor Andy used to say to us all the time, if if there is a highway patrol, and I think there are, I don't know if there's any active highway patrols in the congregation, but if there's a highway patrol in the congregation, he is under the leadership's authority here at church. But when I get on the road, that authority changes. (laughs) You know what? It should change. That's where we get in trouble when we take authority in places it shouldn't be. It should change. Think about this. Jesus has authority over the Holy Spirit, but in his humanity, he was submissive to the Spirit. Therefore, submission doesn't equal inferior. In fact, listen to Luke 2.48. This is what it says. And when his parents, that's Mary and Joseph, simple human beings, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand. Of course they didn't understand, right? Jesus is beyond them. Beyond them. They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. If you're a wife and you're saying, I want to be submissive to my husband, but he's a sinner. And and Jesus was submissive to his father, but he was perfect. How could I be submissive? Listen, Mary and Joseph were sinners. And Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of everything, who holds the universe together by by the power of his word, all-knowing, all-powerful in his humanity, was submissive to his human parents. Submission does not equal inferiority. It is Christ-like. What can we learn from the Holy Spirit? We can model his willingness to make those in authority over him look good without taking any credit himself. And this is remarkable when you think about it. The Spirit is always pointing people to the Son. Always. And through the Son to the Father, the Spirit has this background role and he embraces it and there's no resentment, there's no jealousy, there's no anger. I mean, think about this. The Spirit in particular in the, in the Godhead and the Trinity, the Spirit is the one that's the, the author of Scripture. The, the, God is the author of Scripture but he uses the Spirit, right? God, God the, 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 the Spirit is the one that inspires men to write. What does all of Scripture point to? Jesus. Jesus we see no complaining. He just does everything to make those in authority over him look good. In fact, you want to honor the Holy Spirit? Right? There's whole movements that are happening of, of, of worshiping the Spirit, I believe, differently than the Spirit wants to be worshiped. If you want to honor the Holy Spirit, worship Jesus. Do two things. Live by the Spirit and make much of Jesus. We should always strive to make those in authority over us look good. That's the example. We should work hard in hopes that those above us would succeed. When we model authority and submission after the Trinity, it really is a beautiful thing. Which leads to my fifth application point. Marriage is meant to image the triune God, where both members are equal in essence or value, yet diverse in gender and roles, this is designed by God and is a reflection of the Trinity. The attack on marriage today is a direct assault against the glory of God. Because marriage was meant to image God. This includes divorce, cohabitation, the egalitarian movement which denies the husband's leadership within the home or authority within the home and homosexual marriage. I just want to be clear God intended marriage to be a lifelong one flesh covenant relationship unity between a, a male and female diversity where the male has the authority and responsibility as leader anything less is a direct assault against the nature of God. Marriage was meant to image God. Listen, your marriage is bigger than you. Your marriage is bigger than you. It should glorify God. It should reflect God. And, and before I move on, I just want to say this. If you're divorced this morning, we love you. I'm glad you're here. Like, there is grace. We need you. If you are someone that is struggling with homosexual feelings or temptations... But there's grace. There's grace. Please come talk with a pastor or a leader or someone that you know that is godly, that will love on you, yet speak truth that marriage was meant between a man and a woman. Marriage was meant to image God. Here's some application for husbands and fathers. Model God the Father's example of authority by loving your wife and children as the Father loved the Son. We talked about this. Make much of your wife, encourage your wife and your children. Wives and mothers embrace the role of submission, knowing that God has shown us that being submissive does not make you inferior. Marriage should, should model equality and value, diversity and roles and authority. In fact, if you overemphasize either one of this these, you're not modeling God. Some cultures treat women as inferior to men in value. Probably tendencies of more conservative cultures. That's wrong. You're not modeling God. Some cultures say women and men should be equal in authority. That's probably more liberal cultures. That's wrong. You're not modeling God. The balance is found in the Trinity, equal in value, diverse in roles, relationships, and authority. So, here are the five ways the Trinity should impact our lives. The first one is this God intended His very nature to be expressed or imaged in our human relationships. The second one, being made in the triune God's image tells us that we are made for community. The third, the Trinity models for us a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that's not discord. Fourth, The Trinitarian relationships model to us an inherent expression of authority and submission. And fifth, marriage is meant to image the triune God where both members are equal in value, yet diverse in gender and roles. This is designed by God and is a reflection of the Trinity. And there is a lot more application points. I mean, this is just like an endless doctrine as I started studying it. But I want to end with this. Last week, I gave more of an apologetic sermon. Apologetics, again, that's a fancy word. It just means a reasoned answer for the faith or for the Trinity, a reasoned answer for the Trinity, and it was very philosophical. But I want you to hear what Tim Chester has to say about the Trinity. He says this, the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate argument, in other words, we can give to a lost world For the Trinity is not some cleverly crafted argument or analogy of philosophical explanation. It is the common life of the Christian community. It's the church. You know what's funny? This is the second time I've preached on the Trinity. The first time Brent asked me if I would preach for him, and I just asked, hey, is it okay if I preach on the Trinity? Because I'm writing a paper on the Trinity. and My mind's just stuck in this and I'd love to, to preach on the Trinity. He said, sure. And just before the sermon, the day before the sermon, he came up to me and said, how does Phil be preaching on a subject that you're always one word away from a heresy? Yeah. I said, I felt pretty good till now. <laughs> uh, last week I used a word actually that wasn't best. Uh, the word I used was complex. I said that the creator himself is a more complex, unified diversity. Now, the connotation I was going for was beyond our understanding. He's hard to understand. And that's true, right? God is beyond our understanding, and he's hard to understand. But the definition of complex is this. Consisting of many different and connected parts. The reason why something is complex is because there's so many parts, it's hard to understand. God has no parts. There's no parts. He is simply God. God may be diverse in persons and attributes, but he is completely one without parts. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, the word complex is actually not a good word to use when talking about God. He is one. He has no parts There is no divisions within the Godhead. Why do I bring this up? Well, first, I just want to correct my mistake and hopefully clear up any misunderstandings. But second, and this is more important, I want to further emphasize the unity of God because I want to end with a challenge. We, Country Oaks, when I say we, the local body here, Country Oaks, are called to model this unity to the glory of God. A God that is completely undivided, completely unified. Again, let me read what Tim Chester writes. The unity, or the the ultimate apologetic for the Trinity is not some cleverly crafted argument or analogy of philosophical expression. The ultimate apologetic we can give to a lost world is our unity, our love for one another in diversity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, that's my prayer, Lord. It's been my prayer as we've been going through this passage in Ephesians, week in and week out, that, that that our unity, Lord, that we would be such a loving church and and so unified in our in our worship of You, Lord, in our in our faith in our in our in our identity, Lord, that that it would be attractive that we can invite people in and they could see our love for each other and be what's different with them, Lord. I pray that, that our unity as a church body is the ultimate apologetic that we have. You said that they would know us by our love. Lord, let that be true of Country Oaks. Help me be more loving. Help me to, to reach out to people, Lord. To go outside of my comfort zone, Lord to reach out to people that are different than me, the different ages, different backgrounds, Lord. Reach out to people that are visitors, Lord, that are first time, and invite them into our oneness, Lord. Our oneness in worship of you. I pray that's true for us, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.